and welcome to another episode of the O3C podcast coming to you from O3C Games. We are two gentlemen embarking on an extraordinary odyssey. I am Jonathan Dunn and joining me is Chris Dow. Pastry and Lego. And we are going around the world in 80 games. Announcement! Announcement! hey A few quick announcements for you to kick off this spicy new episode. Firstly, going forwards, we aim to drop our monthly episodes on the first of each month. Obviously, you're all diehards who've rushed to listen to this, the first of our Round the World in 80 Games episodes, at the very earliest opportunity, and you will have realised that it is November the 1st. To streamline things for this season going forwards, you can expect episode 2 of this adventure to launch on the 1st of December, the following on the 1st of January 2024, etc etc however we may still release a few bonus episodes in between the regular ones you'll have to wait and see oh you cheeky boy don't forget of course there's still several parts more to come from the tears of the kingdom spoiler special sub series <laughs> secondly please do check out o3c.games where there are now quick access links to the following number one our weekly email newsletter replete with what we've been up to thoughts of the week and any other old game related gubbins that we can think of Number two, a link to our now public Discord. It would be lovely to chat with more of you. And three, our still existent Patreon. As we've said a few times these last few months, Patreon no longer equals particular perks, but it does help us keep the lights on at O3C Towers. Of course, there is no obligation to subscribe, but if you like what we do and you want us to be able to keep doing it, do consider chipping in a few pence to keep the proverbial hamsters running in their proverbial wheels. Lastly, we have recently been blessed by the TikTok algorithm, gaining a swathe of likes, follows and interest off the back of some of our Playdate gameplay videos. Do check out O3C Games over on that platform if you want to see us, that is, two old men, attempt to navigate and negotiate social media in 2023. <laughs> We've now got a combined age of over 70. Shut up. <laughs> let's, let's, let's club together and get on the bus for free. <laughs> Hello, hello, wonderful world of pod, and welcome to the first in our brand new format series of Around the World in 80 Games. Every month, me and Chris will be virtually visiting a different country and celebrating its gaming history and output, and we are so excited to make a start on this absolute odyssey. Our first port of call is my literal motherland, and that is Denmark. Hooray! That's a Danish fanfare. (laughs) traditional so in a little bit we'll be covering a smattering of the gaming output of the lovely little country looking at their gaming development history covering a couple of games in some big detail it's going to be great but first what are you buying what are you playing we have got a month of gaming to catch up on we'll chat properly about a few of the games we've been playing but first here's some headlines of the other bite-sized content we've been enjoying. That's my headline anthem. <laughs> Are you going to write that one? It's already written. It's a piece of stock headline music. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I'll put it. I'll put it in over the top of that, and you'll see just how closely it, it lines up. Oh, okay. 
first of all, I picked up the new not FIFA game and I wasted <laughs> no time in starting a managerial career as Arsenal getting rid of Eddie Nketiah. I Ooh. fancied a bit of an easy, fun fantasy blast through the game, so I opted to have a billionaire takeover of the club, which I needed so I could spend £304 million triggering Erling Haaland's release clause. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that really is playing the game on easy mode, isn't it? <laughs> it? It really is. Although, having said that, my first choice was Olivier Giroud. I really wanted to bring him back to Arsenal, but apparently he's not available to sign in the game because he's now classed as retiring. Aww. You would not believe how devastated I was. It's like buying the new Mario game, but you can't play as Mario. Like, <laughs> what is the fucking point in football if Olivier Giroud isn't part of it? Uh, I so, agree. Settle for Erling Haaland, I did, and uh, I backed him up with Alexis McAllister, Conor Gallagher, Harvey Elliott, and uh, Michael Elise, and romped through a first season bag in the quadruple. <laughs> Next, a game that is way more fun than it should be, Power Wash Simulator. Yes. Literally yeah. just cleaning. Just cleaning. I spent over two hours spraying hot water all over a suburban bungalow. Had a wonderful time <laughs> doing it. Next, I did push through the horrific gaming experience that is the new Pokemon DLC Aww. for Pokemon Scarlet slash Violet called The Teal Mask. It's fortunately only a few hours long and it's a self-contained new area of the game which led me foolishly to think the performance of the game might improve in a smaller confined area but absolutely fucking not it is a <laughs> full-blown shambles oh. i did the bare minimum required to get the new pokemon in the pokedex pop them in my pokemon home living decks and i've forgotten all about it again thankfully without a doubt the longest i've put into such a bad game it's <laughs> it's so bad it's so bad. Another little game I've played is a game called Gunbrella, and it's a little action platform game from the devs who made the brilliant bite-sized Microvania Gatto Roboto uh, that I played earlier this year, where you play a lovely little cat with a mech suit. I was sort of under the assumption that Gunbrella would be a Metroidvania as well, which it's not, and obviously it's not fair of me to criticise it for that. But, uh, <laughs> and, yet, <laughs> and yet, I was disappointed. <laughs> Yeah. It is just a straight linear action platform game, but it is really, really good. You play as this lone Gumbrellaman wielding the titular weapon that is, of course, part gun, part umbrella. So you can shoot with the gun bit and you can use the umbrella bit as a shield, but also as a Mary Poppins style floating device. And uh, it makes for some cool platforming and action moments. It's good. It's quite a brief game, maybe six hours long, but it's got great witty writing. It's got a nice heartfelt story. And yeah, I recommend it. It's nice. Finally, a little shout out to a lovely, lovely little puzzle game called Windowsill, which I'm not sure I've mentioned before. It's a really, really short, simple an utterly charming, whimsical, beautifully designed little game. You can play through it in about an hour. There's 10 puzzle rooms to work your way through and it's just pure delight from start to finish. It will have you scratching your head and smiling your ears off several times. I try and play through it like every couple of years. Like I give myself enough time to forget about the minutiae of the puzzle solutions and just enjoy the satisfying clicking and discovering and solving. It's lovely. It's actually quite recently got a Switch port. It's a little bit pricey on the Switch, I think, because it's only like a quid or two on Steam. But I definitely recommend, you know, keeping an eye when it goes on sale, maybe pick it up on Steam. It's just a lovely game. It's beautiful. What are your headlines? Headlines. As it's half term, I've been doing a lot of organisation of my emulation setup on my oh, Steam Deck. It is stuff. really boring stuff for most people, but I really enjoy it. I really like it. 
two platforms I had barely touched in terms of curation or management were the Amiga and the ZX Spectrum. And each has a whopping library. And even if my ROM sets for these machines are not fully complete, because that would be absurd, there's still six or 7,000 games to pick through across those two platforms. And I've been gradually sorting artwork, tweaking the naming convention so it's all organised and looks right in my library. But at the same time, I have enjoyed actually visiting some of these kind of unknown titles to me based on just screenshots and names alone. Or sometimes playing through games that I've known from other platforms, but are kind of different because they're here on home computer consoles or or underpowered hardware from the time. So it's new ways to experience stuff that I might otherwise have recognised. I found a single screen shoot-em-up called Better Dead Than Alien that was fun enough, pretty bland, but something. I found a weird European exclusive platformer on the Amiga called The Adventures of Carlos, which was very nicely animated, but dreadful to play. Oh dear. I played through some Spectrum ports of arcade games like Bomb Jack and 1942, both which translate quite nicely, even with the incredibly limited colour hardware of the machine. And I gave a good evening's play to the original Amiga version of Cannon Fodder, because that's where oh, it wow. started, and it plays best there. You know, it's, wow, it's a good game, play. wherever you play it. There's just loads of cool stuff out there, and even if it does take a bit of excavation to find the gold on these Wild West platforms, I do like doing it. It's just... You know, channel surfing through old libraries I get a real kick out of. The only other tiny thing I thought I'd mention here, because it's not really worth a big chunk talking about, a puzzle game launched on the Switch just a few days ago. I saw an article about it on Eurogamer saying this is quite addictive. It's called Suica Game. Oh, is that that watermelon thing? Yeah, Japanese for watermelon, I believe. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly. But essentially, it plays like threes or 2084. You're just trying to make small stuff bigger and then the bigger stuff bigger again by matching them together indefinitely, it seems. Watermelon is the biggest thing. You're trying not to fill up your whole well with fruit before you obviously have the biggest objects in there for points. And I play a few rounds every now and again. It's a lot of fun. It's about £2 something on the eShop. Nice. So I would highly recommend checking that one out if you like that sort of pick up and play super simple puzzle game. Right, let's get into the meat of what we've been playing then. Potatoes. Let's get into the meat of these potatoes. Let's start in a wonderful place. And that is with the first brand new 2D Mario game in 10 calendar years. Boy. And what what a wonderful game this is. Super Mario Wonder. It gleefully delights in subverting your expectations of what a Mario game is and can be. I was really happy that I managed to avoid a lot of coverage of the game before it came out because being surprised by what the game does is the main source of joy for me. So I'm not going to drop any massive spoilers, but if you you do want to stay totally in the dark, then you can skip forward a little bit in the episode. So the new twist on the formula seen in this game is the wonder flowers that instantly turn your stages into trippy psychedelic mutations of what you've come to expect from Mario levels. The classic Mario pipes can turn into moving caterpillars. Uh, You could be suddenly plunged underwater. You could ride on some rainbow rockets. You could transform into a Goomba or like a ball of slime or a balloon or anything else. And it's just wonderful to be surprised in every stage with what it's doing. It rarely uses the same trick twice. And there were many moments when I was sure I could foresee like what the level was going to shift into. And then it just went in a totally different direction and made me laugh out loud. It was like a similar sort of experience to the wonderful time I had with Kirby and the Forgotten Land. And like the mouthful mode in that. It was always surprising. Always funny. It's nice and also quite necessary that this game 
is basically built on all the Mario games that have come before, because in order to subvert all those expectations, they need to have been intrinsically well-established over 30-plus years of gaming. But they've also incorporated so many things from like the more recent games as well, like the Wonder Abilities often feel like a 2D iteration of like the Cappy transformations in Odyssey, yeah. Yeah. or like the bonkers left-field stage designs definitely feel like they've fed off the huge variety of Mario Maker creations that exist. Mm. I think the game looks absolutely stunning. Like, obviously, the general art style is pretty tried and tested, but, I mean, it's never looked better. And the animations are just incredible in this game. Like, the characters have never looked or moved better with more just comedic touches and just lovely smooth details. Like, just going in and out of pipes is always really funny if you just just really look and see what's happening. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. The other key new mechanic that's in the game is the badges system, which allows you to equip a badge per level to augment certain abilities or give you new ones. And these have a few purposes. Namely, they help take the edge off the levels you're struggling with. There are badges that, you know, let you jump higher or run faster or there's more significant ones that give you essentially like a, a free recovery or conjures additional blocks. But it's really nice that the game has incorporated assistance in this way because it means that the challenge is there for those that want the challenge. But if you don't want it, you know, if you are struggling, then it feels very much like it's built into the game so you don't have to go into a menu and change the difficulty level. Having said that, I think I generally prefer the way that like the abilities and stuff work in the new Super Mario Brothers games because you've got kind of like a full and more varied moveset in those. Obviously like the badges in Super Mario Wonder allow you to customise how you play the game depending on your general predilections or you know what the specific limitations are of the level that you're trying to get through but I don't know I just really liked how the new Super Mario Brothers games felt like you were controlling a 3D Mario game but in 2D with like triple jumps and the quick turn backflips and like the more fluid wall jumping. I just felt a lot more freer in those games than I do here, sort of rather than limiting myself to like one of those mechanics at a time. And there's also some ability badges that definitely more of a hindrance than an ability <laughs> that like I would never choose unless they're thrust upon me in like one of the challenge levels, which then just sort of feel like it's a bit more frustrating than challenging. Just like it's fine like having like the occasional ice level where things are a bit slippery or an underwater level where things are a little bit floaty. But then yeah, there's some abilities that I just think I don't know, there didn't seem a reason to put that in. It just felt like, well, you wanna do this one? Well, I'll make it harder by making it more annoying. I'm not gonna get too down on the game, because this is an absolutely fantastic game. But there are there's just a couple of other things that really niggle me as well. Now, you know what? No, it's just me gonna be having a moan and there's no point. <laughs> Like, it's things like, I think I said this before, like, an absolute precocious dickhead. I said, oh, I think we're in a post-lives era of gaming. Yeah. And I stand by that. There's yeah, no point yeah. in having lives in this game. It would have made more sense for, like, your coins to be your currency in the game, of having, like, another type of coin that you collect in, like, the wonder coins that you get and spending those. There's also quite a few of the wonder seeds that you sort of collect, you know, through the levels. They're, like, the main things you collect. There's a few of those that are just, like, given to you or you have to buy in a shop. And I don't see the point in them being in the game because in, like, Mario Odyssey, there's, like, a thousand moons. So there's a definitive amount that you need to get to. So it'd be like, right, well, we've done 970, so let's just have, like, 10 to buy in, in a few shops and yeah. that'll get us to a thousand. 
Whereas this, it's not even like there's 50 seeds per world. So, you know, it's like, oh, we've got to 47, so let's put three in the shop. It's like all of the worlds have a different amount of seeds to get. Why just have ones just given them? It just seems, I don't know, it made no sense to me other than to have a, a little scene to go, here's a seed, help us. <laughs> maybe that's why, maybe that's enough. I don't know. I don't a little know. Scene. Maybe, we maybe, love a little scene. Yeah, yeah. I'm nitpicking because, it, you know, it's, it's a 9 out of 10 game, not a 10 out of 10 game. Oh, the one thing I will say, and I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, I did find the game a lot easier than previous Mario games. Yeah. Even if you don't utilise the assistance badges or the new online play, which is really cool to be fair. It's, it's almost taken a leaf out of Dark Souls book with players able to leave standees around the stage as clues or as like emergency respawn points should you die. It's really good fun. It's a bit visually distracting, but it is quite nice to have. There was probably only two levels in the game that actually really sort of gave me some problems that I lost 10, 20 lives on. Both of them were like in the special world, like five-star difficulty ones. I will say that they had the vibe of something I would have made for you to play on Mario Maker. (laughs) (laughs) Which is wavering precariously on the edge of hard and unfair. But I beat both of them and I've also 100%ed the game now. It was good fun. It was really, really good. I did end up buying the game digitally because my physical copy of the game got delayed in the post. So literally, I got an email saying some of the copies have been delayed. This was the day after it had been released. So I was already miffed. And I was like, fine, I'll buy the game, downloaded it. Literally before it finished downloading, my physical copy came through the door. (laughs) But I've been able to return it, so that's fine. That's good. But the nice thing about having it digitally is I've got the inclination to play through it again. And I'll more than happily start up on another save file. I might do an entire playthrough as one of the other characters, you know, because I haven't actually played as any of the other characters, just Mario. And they've all got different characteristics as well. So Luigi obviously jumps a bit higher. But also like the Yoshi characters and the Nabbit character, you don't get hurt. But also you can't transform in your abilities. So I don't know whether or not they are just easy characters or whether the fact that you can't have abilities will make it challenging in a different way. I'm interested to see how they are. And even though like the Wonder Flower surprises won't be quite as fun the next time round when I know what's going to happen, I'm looking forward to seeing the different animations for all the different characters and all their transformations because that'll be just an absolute delight. But yeah, it's really, really good. It is really, really good. But I think for me, the package of New Super Mario Brothers U Deluxe, which combines an amazing 2D Mario game with the new Super Luigi U DLC, which is like... The tough one. The tough one. Mm. It's such a brilliant package that it doesn't quite trump that for me, even though it is absolutely brilliant. You've made a start on it, haven't you? How are you getting on with it? I have. It's It's been a real treat, Yeah, like you say. And it's been a real surprising treat as well because i knew i was going to buy it regardless but i was kind of worried that as what is likely the swan song mario title for the switch Mm. i thought a 2d platformer could be a bit too safe in the shadow of like mario odyssey and bowser's fury and i was just plain wrong (laughs) just wrong (laughs) because you know like you after that initial reveal trailer i essentially stuck my pre-order in and then just stopped looking at previews and pre-release footage because i knew it was coming so who cares you know yeah i'm gonna be playing it regardless i might as well go in cold and going in cold would mean that even if it was a safe game you know a la a new super mario brothers entry at least the stage layouts would be all unknown and fresh because i hadn't watched anything so that was kind of my thinking but from that initial reveal trailer i knew that you could be an elephant yeah i knew that there were talking flowers that for some reason sounded like modern sonic's voice actor yeah they do a bit i don't know if it's the same guy but it's very close yeah. and and that was kind of it I really do feel it would have been so easy for Nintendo to look at the install base for the Switch, which is millions, 
roll out a cookie cutter new super mario brothers u2 whatever you want to call it something. <laughs> with bono <laughs> <laughs> but just you know tide fans over until the switch's successor and be done with it you know launch the switch 2 with odyssey 2 or something along those lines and just say this was your little stopgap and that would have been okay to be honest but instead like you've said they've essentially pumped out a franchise defining 2d mario game yeah because it's every bit the proper sequel to the more experimental mario games like yoshi's island before it and i think new super mario brothers always felt like the natural follow-on to super mario world Mm. in that it was about having really rock solid mechanics but they were kind of a bit limited in how far they were able to push the form of a stage because it had to still be quite pure yeah you know they're very pure experiences pure platformers if you want to be good at a platform game practice on those that's like yeah what platformers should feel like the ideal kind of thing and wonder on the other hand is just <laughs> batshit crazy from the moment you yeah. stick it on and when i first booted it up i'll be honest i was nursing a, a bit of a hangover i'd been out the <laughs> night before and after three or so stages i just had to call it a day like it was total sensory overload i couldn't look at yeah. the screen anymore it was like this is too bright this is too loud this is too <laughs> colorful i need to just chill out i'll come back to it tomorrow and it looks incredible. I think the character art, like you've said, it finally matches, I think, the outstanding work Nintendo have put into their 3D Mario titles mm. for years. You know, I, I think the music is a joy. I think the variety on offer here in the stages is like best in class to the point where Rayman Origins and Legends, which I would say are the second best pure 2D platform franchise we've had outside of Mario, really, in the last yeah. decade or so, they start to look a little bit vanilla in comparison. Because as much as they like to mix things up and give you a musical stage or, or give you something that's more like touchscreen based when you're playing it on the Wii U or whatever, every stage in Wonder is just like, here's what you thought was going to happen. And now something weird is happening instead. <laughs> and now you're a cake. <laughs> and that's really fun. Like, yeah. I think it's probably, for me, in the small amount I've played, the best looking and playing 2D Mario in the modern era. So I get where you're coming from with New Super Mario Brothers. I do. But mm. I think it just has something which makes it very like fizzy and exciting. Mm. And those games never quite captured that. They made me smile and I had a great time playing through them. But they didn't make me feel like Odyssey did, where it was just every moment was like mouth open joy. Yeah. And in this game, you know, there's content coming out of the wazoo. It's a big platform game. I think it feels really tight to play. It's really nice to hold in the hand. And it's just creative and subversive at every turn. And like you've said, I don't want to talk about level specifics or gimmicks outside of the few bits you've kind of mentioned in passing. I just want people to go and buy it. Yeah. I would say that almost everyone listening to this show owns a switch and by extension most of you have probably already bought mario wonder but if you haven't buy it and have a nice time yeah that is the the o3c order of the week (laughs) just go and have a nice time you've earned it have you played anything else i know you've probably blitzed through mario in like two minutes so you must have played something else in the last four weeks ever since i first played dark souls i've had a a perpetual itch in my brain that has needed the occasional satiating scratch. Yeah. There have been a couple of occasions where I have played two Souls-like games back to back, but usually after I beat one, I need a bit of a timeout. It doesn't take me long, though, before I have the urge to play another one. And it was really, really nice because when I discovered Dark Souls, I already had Dark Souls 2 and 3 and Bloodborne that had already been released and they were lying in wait for me to discover... Sekiro was just around the corner too and then there was a whole heap of Souls inspired 2D games like Hollow Knight to fill the void but since Elden Ring came along and blew my mind I haven't had another 3D Souls-like game to tide me over whilst I wait for the Elden Ring DLC 
But then an indie game has appeared that looked to be basically trying to be the next gen Bloodborne remaster that we'll never get from From Software, and that yeah. is Neo Wiz's Lies of P. Uh, uh, yeah. Lies <laughs> of P, also known as Potty Training My Daughter. <laughs> Have you done a wee? No. <laughs> It's a terrible name. It alludes to the story of Pinocchio. Oh, fuck's sake. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> when I've seen anything about this, I'd be like, oh, it's, it's Bloodborne, isn't it? Yeah. And I, did, I didn't give the name any mind whatsoever. It's a terrible name. Like, I don't see... <laughs> it's very, very, very loosely based on Pinocchio. It's taken a few leaves out of American McGee's book, and they've basically turned the story of the dishonest puppet and they've transformed it into a grimdark horror story setting the story in a post-apocalyptic victorian world after some puppety pandemic has caused all the animatronics to rise up against their makers and blah 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 blah. the story's fine and it doesn't need to be based on pinocchio with the sheer level of departure that they've taken from (laughs) the source material it's nice to see nods to the original story but honestly they could have just totally embraced it and just like made it their own, yeah. made their own story, and and they still could have done like puppets in a post-apocalyptic Victorian world. They didn't need to base it on Pinocchio, and you've got like a cricket talking to you. The cricket is not called Jiminy Cricket in the original story. That's pure Disney, pure <laughs> Disney creation. But the cricket in this is called Gemini, but it's pronounced Gemini. Really? Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like Gemini. Gemini. Gemini, yeah. comma the cricket. And, like, you have to fight off, like, a mad donkey who's just a man with a donkey mask on. Obviously. Instead of, you know, the donkey. It's just, it's like, you don't need to do that. You could have even, if you really wanted it to be like, oh, look, it's it's sort of a bit of a play on Pinocchio. You could have had those things in there whilst also not going, look, this is Pinocchio. They could have just changed the names yeah. of the characters and just embraced an original story of their own. Can I assume that you level up your character by talking to Geppetto. You don't, actually. But, you don't, um, okay. You don't. You level up, obviously, by talking to the Blue Fairy. <laughs> She's not the Blue Fairy. She's called something else. There is, however, there is a little post credit scene at the end of the game that reveals a tease for their take on another classic story that they almost certainly be tackling next. So, yeah. Obviously, that I think they probably went, oh, we could do this. This could be the foundation for a series going forward. And sure, it is a thing. But the story is good. Like, it's interesting. Like, they've had to, like I said, the departure from the source material is so vast. They've got a whole, whole lore of their own. So just, like, just own it. Just own it. Anyway. Spoiler alert. Do you want to know what game they might be doing next? I really do. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> Which I assume will be called, like, lies of d or something yeah um, yeah probably so <laughs> but i mean she's not the liar though is she it's the wizard I, i've never seen it what I've never seen it <laughs> like everything about this segment is blowing my mind at the moment <laughs> none of it's true anyway i mean all of this styling is all just an attempt to mimic bloodborne from software's ps4 souls like which has not received its next gen update despite everyone desperately clamoring for one or a sequel, uh, which I'd also love. But it is entirely to Neo Wiz's credit that Lies of P feels exactly like a From Software game. To the point where, if you'd have told me that it was a high-end like asset swap mod of Bloodborne, I believe you. It feels 
utterly incredible to play. The foundation of the game and the way this game works is entirely unoriginal because it is directly copying Dark Souls. But then lots of people try to mimic great artists unsuccessfully. So it's a great achievement in that respect. The downside is that the game is pretty forgettable. Like, honestly, there were times early on when I was only a few hours in. Like, I play a bit, I turn it off, I go back to work. and I just plain forget that the game existed, <laughs> that I was playing it. But the game is incredibly good. It's a really, really good game. It's insanely well made. It looks and feels amazing to play. It just doesn't occupy its own space in my brain. Yeah. It's flat sharing with Bloodborne. That like forgettability though, it did it did change eventually as I started getting more into the game, started getting, you know, sort of pulled into that brilliant addictive loop. And also I started getting my head around some of the more original mechanics that they've put in the game, like its fantastic weapon system, which is pretty much all of its own. It, it plays into the handcrafted mechanical themes of the puppets. So when you find a new weapon, it's in two parts. There's the blade and the handle. And then you can go to a little workshop and you can swap the handles for different handles with blades on different handles. It basically allows you to combine them in a multitude of ways to get a weapon that really, really suits your style. So like special abilities and the special attacks or like the, you know, the buff moves that the weapons have, they reside in the handles, but the elemental powers are in the blades. So I could say, oh, I really like this special move, but actually that's on some fire weapon, but actually it'd be much more useful if it was on this electric weapon so I can take it apart and put it back together and hey-ho, I've got it. Mm. And then the overall like different attack styles, you know, the properties of being like a great sword or a dagger or a spear or whatever. All of those things are then based on how you combine it and, you know, what the two things come together as. And then you can also tweak the mechanics of all of those individual elements to turn them into things that will work better for you with whatever stats you're sort of aiming to level up. So you have a huge amount of control over your weapons, which is really, really great fun. And I think there's actually scope to take it even further with more weapon types available, which, you know, hey, might be utilised if they do like DLC or this sequel. And it is that element that really does set it apart from the Dark Souls game, especially when you combine it. You've also got a, uh, a puppety mechanical appendage on your left hand. It's like the prosthetic arm that you have in Sekiro, where you can switch it out to go to different things, so you can do different things with your left arm. And it's the same in Lies of P. Again, not original, but also really cool. So you could have a puppet string lasso attack, or you could throw projectiles, or plant bombs, or do like powerful elemental attacks. You've got a huge amount of control over the combat. And once you sort of get your mind around like the different enemy types, they're generally sort of split into puppets or humans or undead and they all have elemental weaknesses. So you can then build weapons that are going to work best for certain areas and stuff like that. And it's just it's really, really cool. It's really good. It makes you feel like really in control and like you've got one up on the environment, which is something you don't often feel in a Souls-like game. Mm. The titular Lies of P is actually part of the morality system that's in the game, and you have that in Dark Souls, with change the world tendency from being like light to dark by doing mm. certain things and not doing certain things, and it can like shift the way certain enemies behave and unlock different areas. It's, honestly, it's a system I never got my head around. But you do have that in Lies of P, where basically you have certain key story points where you can either lie or tell the truth. And the more you lie, the more you become closer to becoming a human. And that, that will dictate what ending to the story you get. And it's pretty cool. It's pretty nice. Ooh. The enemy designs are pretty good, if not massively original. There are some pretty cool boss designs, as you would expect in a game like this. The level designs are really decent. 
I mean, it's not quite as seamless or original as like what From Software do, but it's nice to return to the sort of more linear level design structure of something like the Dark Souls games as opposed to what Elden Ring did with its open world, which obviously I loved. But then it is nice to go back to these like claustrophobic levels, you know, and see like the nice sort of clear shortcutting that you unlock where you drop a ladder and then oh, I've got a shortcut back to that save point or whatever. There aren't any areas in the game that have that sort of feeling of like it really begs to be explored in the way that you do get in Dark Souls. But honestly, what we're doing here is essentially comparing an indie game to one of the greatest AAA game developers in the world. It is a staggering achievement what NeoWiz have created here, even if it is pretty unoriginal in the large part. The game looks and performs amazingly well. Every bit as good as the Demon's Souls remake, which I think is probably its closest comparison point. Yeah. Also, the music in the game is utterly outstanding. Like the general underscoring is really, really good. It's really beautiful. But one of like the collectibles in the game you unlock are vinyl records that you find around the world, and then you can take them back and play them in your main hub area. And there are some truly beautiful songs and pieces of music that you can listen to whilst you're doing your, your upgrades and you're leveling up and your lore and stuff, all the stuff you do in your hub world. It's, it's really, really exceptional. So, yeah, I mean, it is absolutely brilliant. Like I said, it's not original, but we don't have Bloodborne on the PS5. If you're looking for something that's like that, get this, because it's really, really good. I would say it's definitely the best feeling 3D Souls-like game I've played outside of From Software stuff. Like, it's always the, the combat is something that these copycat games don't seem to get right. They never seem to get the weighty, crunchy feel of the combat quite right. Or they try and overcomplicate it and do something different for the sake of being different, like in the Neo games. But this is, is really exceptional. And hopefully, now that they've established what they have here with Lies of P, Neo Wiz can build on that and hopefully have a bit more confidence to forge their own unique path into this market. And yeah, I can't wait to see what they do next. Really, really great. Wow. Have you played anything else other than the like two hours of nauseating Mario Wonder? <laughs> <laughs> I've been back into the play date big time in this last month because I've had to do a lot of train travel to and from London in the last couple months and I just don't like taking my Steam Deck or my Switch with me on trips like that they're too big they're too expensive the battery isn't that great on either one of them really for like a long trip and I have such big libraries on both that sometimes I'll turn them on when I am trying to travel somewhere I'm staying at a travel lodge or whatever and I just get a sort of choice paralysis, which means that half of my trip or time that I could be playing games on that trip is just spent loading and then loading a different game and then loading a different mm. game because I can't really commit to wanting to play anything in particular. Last time when I was having to travel to London with this frequency, I was deep in the fish and feathers hole yeah. and I played 20 plus hours of that just endlessly on the train going for high scores and I loved it. But with that kind of done and dusted, it's left me to explore a couple other titles in a bit more depth, Whee! which has been, as with every play date sort of excursion I've had, really lovely. First up then, a puzzle game called Soko. It's on the catalogue. It costs about a dollar and it's a great block pushing Sokoban game. Really, really simple. It's got a nice difficulty ramp that sort of builds up very, very quickly, but it's a nice thing to just sit with. It's the sort of puzzle that would be really aggravating if you were playing it on a giant TV screen because you'd almost feel compelled to just bash your head against it until you solved something. But when it's contained in this little dinky device with its crisp black and white screen, which is still just as nice today as when I first saw it, it just feels more manageable to stab at a puzzle, rewind a few steps, 
chip away until kind of the, the route through it reveals itself. It just makes things feel a bit softer than if it was kind of like all encompassing. It's everything in my vision and thought. Next up, a game from season one that we were both a bit so-so on in our review at the time, but I've ended up going back to and really loving for the train. Zach Gage's Snack. Oh yeah, no, it's good. It's good. It's good game. Yeah, I mean, when we played it, we kind of said it's a snake with jump, isn't it? I mean, that is, and that's about is. all we could say because that is what it is. <laughs> but I think you know, I've mentioned back in that episode that Zach Gage he was quoted at the time as wanting to make a game that you could forget about completely for five years, but that it would be accessible enough that you could drop back and pick it up immediately. And this has been proof that he's absolutely succeeded. You know, it's not been yeah. five years. But fascinatingly for me, having an extended break from it and playing it now by choice, as opposed to specifically for that podcast episode, it's just really clicked for me. You know, the pace of it, the strategy of it, even the constant throbbing soundtrack of it is nice to have on headphones when you've just got the constant (coughs) 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 the whole time. I think it's a much greater success than I gave it credit for when I was playing it next to Sasquatchers, like a real kitchen sink Mm. effort game. Where it was just like, more, more, just push more into this thing. What can we do? More. Whereas Snack was just like, I will do one thing and I will do one thing well. And at the time it kind of felt like, ah, but a second thing might have been nice. When in actuality, to go back to it now, I really appreciate that purity. Finally, the real jewel of my Playday adventure in the last month or so, a former sideload from itch.io that got added to the catalogue literally days before we are recording. It's in this most recent drop is a game called Sketch, Solve and Share, and it's just Picross. Brilliant. But it's one of the cleanest non-Jupiter Picross games I've played. Mm. Like, it nails all of the tiny considerations that off-brand Picross games usually forget. Yeah. It's the tiny things like, your cursor will wrap from the top back to the bottom of the board and vice versa when you're moving around. And the way that holding down the mark button and flying along a full column or row will fill in all the empty spaces but not the spaces that you've already placed an X on. Mm. You know, it's stuff that should be really obvious, but people often forget. Because I think developing a Picross game is almost like developing your first basic Space Invaders clone. You know, it's a proof of concept thing that it's just, yeah. can I make the logic of this programming language work? Yes, ship it, that's fine. <laughs> Whereas this is someone who said, I really like Picross and I want a good Picross on the play date, so I'm just going to refine it until it feels the best it can. You know, it's other things as well, like the way the number clues at the top and the side are automatically kind of marked out once that rule has been satisfied. Yeah. Whether you've hemmed in that square with X's or not, it's nice enough to say, yeah, you've ticked that one off, so don't worry about it. And it just makes the whole thing feel really brisk and snappy. My only criticism really is that due to the size of the Playdate screen and the developer's choice not to implement scrolling in the puzzles, all of the puzzle boards are capped at 10 by 15. And this isn't a problem, as I think that's basically the optimum size for a puzzle before it starts to get a little bit long-winded and unwieldy. And I don't always enjoy playing a Picross puzzle that takes me 35 minutes. But every once in a while, I do pine for something just a bit more challenging. And as it stands, outside of two or three puzzles, maybe in the 200 or so I've now solved in this game, none have taken me more than five minutes at the absolute most to unpick. So it's not the most taxing selection. It is very good, though. And what pleases me for the play date in itself is that this is yet another puzzle staple that I can now happily stow on the machine alongside Sparrow Solitaire, alongside Rainblocks, alongside Smolitaire. All these games that I come back to again and again because they just fill a five minute void perfectly. It's a good machine. I really like it. Around 
this is our first stop on the Grand O3C Tour of the World, Denmark. To kick us off, here are some facts about Denmark. Despite there being no word for please in Denmark, they are one of the happiest countries in the world, with one of the oldest flags in the world. There is an annual carnival in Denmark, held every February, where you dress up in silly costumes and hit a cat in a barrel. It's called Festalauen, and thankfully these days it's just essentially a big cardboard piñata with pictures of cats on it. That's good. That's good. I was worried (laughs) there for a moment. (laughs) And of course, Danish pastries are only Danish pastries if they are from the Denmark region. Otherwise, they should technically be known as sparkling cakes. (laughs) Also, Danish pastries are Austrian. Are they? Nothing to do with Denmark. (laughs) Hope you've learned something there. If you want to learn something more, and that's a bit more on brand and about video games, here's Chris. It's actually really tough to put together a history of games development for any country. You know, whether that's your own home turf, whether that's one of the big hitters like the US or Japan, whether that's a smaller nation or something in between. Because there isn't an easy place to start, because games have essentially existed both as things to be played and things that would be developed in every single territory around the world since computers have existed. (laughs) Anyone who has picked up a computer has generally, throughout time, gone, be nice if I could play a little game on here. And that's where things are born. It's just essentially wanting to kill time, wanting to do something fun with a device that you suddenly realise has the capability to perhaps do something more than run a spreadsheet or something like that. And so instead of trying to say, on this day in this year, this is when games started in Denmark, which I think is physically impossible, I've tried to pull out a few notable games, studios, or examples of kind of milestone releases. What was the first major game to come out of Denmark? No idea. But I can at least tell you about some of the names that you may or may not be aware of, though perhaps should. IO Interactive, most famous for the Hitman series, and Playdead most famous for Limbo and Inside. Both studios that we're going to explore in some way a little bit further in the episode, they're the big names from Danish development. IO have existed since the late 90s and have essentially worked to refine the Hitman formula since their inception right through to present day. You know, the first Hitman game debuted in 98 and the most recent iteration of the franchise is still receiving active support in 2023. That has very much been their bag for that whole time. But they've pumped out other titles here and there as well. I remember Freedom Fighters, a squad-based third-person adventure game. It reviewed very well in like the PlayStation 2 era, even though I've still to this day never got around to checking it out. But the formula for that game would arguably set the groundwork for their later Kane and Lynch duology, which again was squad-based yeah. third-person shooting, which I do have a surprisingly large soft spot for. Not going to talk about it today, but the first game is pretty average but enjoyable. The second game does a lot of pretty cool things I think would be cool to uh, explore at some point. Contemporary to those violent, mature games, Kane and Lynch, IO also chucked out Mini Ninjas, and that was a platform adventure game that appears to have been a reasonable hit across the Wii and the 360 and the PS3. I've never played it. (laughs) More recently, though, although Hitman still remains their bread and butter, like I said, they are currently developing a James Bond title as well. Wow. Which, although licensed, seems unlikely to stray that far from the Hitman formula that they've refined, so could be pretty exciting. If IO are the country's most recognisable AAA developer, Playdead are surely the biggest AA team, if we can use that term. Even if Playdead have only shipped two games, they are wonderful games. And we've (laughs) talked a lot on the show in the past about 2010's Limbo and 2016's Inside. But I do think for here, it's worth mentioning the cultural significance of Limbo especially. Because alongside other games like Braid and Super Meat Boy, it undoubtedly was part of that movement that was 
heralding essentially a new era in games and one where development costs of big marquee titles had ballooned enough that publishers like Microsoft, you know, industry leaders at the time, started to look for cheaper solutions to finance and support to fill the gaps in schedules. And Limbo released at a time where indie began to straddle everything from a single designer in a bedroom through to 50 plus people in an office. And the success of titles like Limbo absolutely made this avenue to double A that I've mentioned like a properly viable market. So I think it really is important to consider that in that context to say this was not a huge budget game, but it was also supported way more than most indie titles had been to that point. And it's quite exciting to know that that was happening in Denmark. Outside of these big boys, you may have heard of some of these other Danish hits. The iOS mega hit Subway Surfers. Great game. Came from the Danish mobile developers Kailu Games, apparently. Affordable Space Adventures, an eShop exclusive for the Wii U that people at the time heralded as a game that actually uses the gamepad properly, <laughs> came from a small Danish team called Napnock Games. And a few modern indie hits like Where Is My Heart, which I originally played on the PSP, Mutazione, and the extremely recently released Salt Sea Chronicles have all come from Copenhagen-based Die Gut Fabrik. Hugo... The weird mascot troll character thing that I always see pop up when I'm scrolling ROM libraries is in fact a Danish designed animated TV star from the 90s and has seen about 10 or so video games since then, almost (laughs) all designed by a variety of smaller Danish studios. So they're keeping it close to home. Bolverk Games, who made Plucky Ball Roller Glyph, and we interviewed them back in season three, I believe, are also from Denmark. And finally, modern co-op hit Deep Rock Galactic that I'm pretty sure I got in a humble bundle and just never installed on my Steam Deck is also from the Jolly Land of Lego. Yeah, it's a PS Plus monthly game, so I've got it as well. We've all got it. (laughs) So this is a tiny snapshot, really, of a country that, if not consistently responsible for massive headline releases like Hitman, it has had a quietly burgeoning scene and culture of modern indie developers as well as smaller teams, that extends back to the 90s, really, when a range of Mega Drive and early 32-bit releases trickled out of the country too. Some games I've played, if only for five minutes, via emulation like Subterranea, Sword of Sodan, they're both Danish. Some modern games that I've seen on kind of storefronts like Steam, but not checked out, like Kalimba, The Silent Age, they're Danish. And Ghost Runner, that we both played, but only you beat, because I am shit at video games. That's Danish too. So basically, there's lots to choose from, but today we're going to cover a pair of games in more succulent detail. So, I mean, the format we've decided to adopt for this series is essentially covering two games per country, like a more well-known game and a lesser-known game as well. So I'm going to kick this off with, as Chris has said, Denmark's biggest gaming export, which you probably didn't know until now, was developed in Denmark. (laughs) You're welcome, brains of the world. Uh, That's the Hitman franchise from Danish developers IO Interactive. So I'll preface this by saying that most of this is brand new information to me because I've never played a Hitman game before last week. I really wanted (laughs) to properly give some context for this coverage. As long-time listeners will know, neither me or Chris are massively into the big triple a game releases that most people might queue up on day one for stuff like call of duty assassin's creed horizon battlefield far cry like those sort of games obviously i am first in line for a lot of big game releases especially you know nintendo one so i'm I'm absolutely not being critical of the big franchises just simply saying that they're not really generally the games that i want to play immediately yeah i would put hitman in that category 
like I don't really remember the first Hitman game coming out. I thought it was on the PS2, but apparently the first game was just a PC game. Yeah. But then the sequel came out on consoles. And even though I had a GameCube, uh, there was a GameCube version that came out. Just didn't massively interest me in the same way that something like Splinter Cell did, which, you know, is very much in the same wheelhouse, stealth-based, espionage, slash murder, depending on how you look at it. (laughs) Depending on how cool the protagonist is, I think. Yeah. Sam Fisher, comma, murderer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. James Bond, comma, cunt. Like, back in those days, before rampant online activity and bigger pockets for your money and more pocket money, we'd only really play what our mates were playing or, you know, what we were chatting about. And that was generally just Nintendo stuff for me at that time. And I think by the time the Hitman series had gained traction with a a slew of sequels of that era of consoles, I just sort of accepted that it wasn't going to be a series I was ever going to really get into. Like, in doing some research, I see that the first Hitman game on the next generation of consoles so like the ps3 basically square basically published the game but they also deviated massively from the popular format of that first batch of games they sort of hijacked the series i think once they saw some some potential in it and people weren't happy with it then there was a whole lot of legal jumbling and license acquisition a few years later (laughs) they did a soft reboot of the series on the subsequent console generation PS4, etc., with uh, Hitman, and followed up by Hitman 2, and then Hitman 3, which is the first time they'd actually numbered the games, because the first game was called Hitman Codename 47, and I was That's like, true. didn't play the first 46. <laughs> Hitman 3 is, is now the first current generation release, and uh, handily, for me at least, that trilogy of modern games has been remastered and re-released in one pack called Hitman World of Assassination, which is what I picked up to sample before chatting about it. So for the uninitiated, as in me last week, (laughs) Hitman uh, follows a a cloned contract killer known simply as Agent 47. You travel the world assassinating various targets that are assigned to you by the hopefully fictional International Contract Agency, which I I guess is probably what privatised murder (laughs) would look like. Yeah, yeah. Vote Labour. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you're dumped into a sandbox scenario and can then go from there to achieve your objectives by literally any way you want it's really really good fun and it does cater to absolutely all types of gameplay if you want to be sneaky mcstealth face you can attempt the perfect silent assassination you can you know take people down silently stashing the body stealing their outfit to disguise your way through restricted areas lockpick doors and poison the target sushi platter before making a swift getaway down a drain pipe you could be a bit more brazen leave a few obvious bodies in your wake stir up some commotion and shoot the man from a distance while people are distracted or you can strap up and go in all guns blazing running jumping shooting throwing some grenades weaving your way to your target and limp away trailing blood in your wake it's actually quite overwhelming when you're first dumped into a mission with just the sheer amount you could do you often don't really know where to start there are some really good and comprehensive tutorial missions that see you assassinate chris's doppelganger so that's really good fun <laughs> what's his name jasper knight i only know about this character really because when i was working at my previous school i once had an email from one of my sixth formers that i taught photography to at the time just with a picture <laughs> of jasper knight attached with the message at the top just saying why has my game asked me to kill you sir <laughs> So if anyone wants to see that picture, 
Please, please Google it. Check out our TikTok. I put something on there. Yeah. But like yeah. the the more I the more I played of the game, the more I realised how much I could take my time with what I was doing. It isn't like Assassin's Creed or Splinter Cell where you need to strike quick or you'll miss your chance. You really can take your time. You can plot, plan, blend in. So you don't need to know what to do first because there isn't a right, there isn't a wrong. You can afford to just wander around for a bit, scope things out and get some intel. There's something incredibly cool and also quite tense about this approach that I really wasn't expecting. I've been playing my way through this game in tandem with the new Spider-Man game on PS5. And I really enjoy doing the stealth takedowns in Spider-Man, which is ludicrously straightforward compared to how you have to do it in Hitman. Yeah. Uh, you can't just press a button and web up a bad guy who your augmented reality heads-up display has conveniently labelled safe yeah. to do so with. You know, you have to be aware of who else is around, who might be able to see through your disguise. So if you're dressed up as a waiter whose body is cooling off in the freezer... You can't just waltz past the manager who probably knows who is and isn't on their staff. Yeah. You can't yeah. just magically dispose of a body. You have to find a convenient place to hide it, ideally before you take them down, so you can then drag them quickly and efficiently to the hiding place. I'm a few missions into the first Hitman game portion of this World of Assassination trilogy, and it has been really, really fun. And there is something very satisfying about playing a proper AAA title especially one that's actually released or at least swiftly patched to a very, very high degree. Like the gloss and the sleekness, you know, between this and Spider-Man 2, I really feel every inch of power that's coming out of my PS5. Yeah. The technical achievement of these Hitman missions is absolutely astonishing. Like the amount that's happening at any one time. There's so many people. There's so many. It's annoying because there's so many witnesses. But like, there's so many things to be aware of. There's crowds of things. There's every single detail has to be in place so that you can examine it. And I don't know how it's doing it because all of these people look and move really authentically and organically, and it's overwhelming. Yeah, is the word for it. It really, really is. Like, it's a feast to get yourself into if that's what you're in the mood for. It requires a very, very different part of my brain to what something like Spider-Man does or even, you know, something like a quicker stealth game, even something like the Thief games where you do need to sort of take your time and crouch in the shadows and wait for your moment. Feel like arcade mobile game compared to this. Um, and <laughs> yeah. like it yeah. feels like, right, I'm going to I'm booking out this evening. I'm going to do this one mission. I found myself like more invested in the wider lore of this world and the character than I thought I would be. I think a side effect of having a fairly anonymous protagonist, like I assumed he was going to be just a bit bland, but it's definitely not the case. It's helped by some very, just really cool voice acting. And it's also one of the only factors that kind of gives away the Danish roots of the game, because there is just a very slight Danish mm. twang to his accent. I did some research. He's a British born actor called David Bateson. He's been based in Denmark for 25 years, something like that. But he was also brought up in South Africa. So that may Could also be that account for, the, well, yeah. for an interesting interesting look to the accent. But I also found he's got another video game connection. Because he did the voice of Bowser in the Danish dub of the Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's some trivia for you, isn't it? This is why you're watching this, this show. Have you ever played a Hitman game, Chris? Oh, bits and pieces. I mean, Hitman as a series, I really feel just isn't for me. Like, my earliest exposure to the whole franchise was 
through a preview in a magazine, probably like computer and video games as a kid. I used to have a subscription to mm. computer and video games and also the Beano. Like I vaguely remember the things the writer was delving into about the gameplay of that first PC exclusive entry. It felt exciting just because I couldn't play it. <laughs> You know, basically when I read those magazines, not having the hardware or not having the money made any game more exciting. So I remember reading a preview of like Quake on the PC and thinking, oh, I'd like to play Quake or Dragon Force on the Saturn or Rage Racer on the PS1 or Half-Life and Hitman as well. Like all games that I, if I have played, it's been much later in life because at the time I was a wee boy and my pocket money would not stretch to these sorts of things. Mm. So it'd be a while until I'd get a chance to actually experience the Hitman action to really out myself for the third or fourth time this episode as an ancient old man, if that wasn't clear enough already, when my local branch of Blockbuster opened, <laughs> you know, a video rental franchise that we must remember entered administration back in 2010, they ran a promotion for anyone within a certain adjacent postcode that would entitle them to two free rentals. And as a family, we rented some film that I do not recall. And I also rented Hitman 2 on my relatively fresh PlayStation 2. Yeah. And to really sell how little this game connected with me, as a teen, at a time when games were everything in my young life, and mature games in particular, were the thing to cover and play, I put Hitman 2 on and I just felt utterly lost. Like, the beginning of the game, why was I changing into the gardener's clothes? Why was I being punished for shooting someone that I'd been told was an enemy? Why did I die so easily? Why was I having to stand in the bushes like a peeping Tom watching NPCs wander about, but not actually interacting with them directly? Like, it just didn't make sense to me then. So I, I took it back to Blockbuster when my rental was up and didn't really think about it. I tried again with Hitman when Absolution on the PS3 came out on PlayStation Plus, I think, so it was a freebie. Mm. At that time, obviously, I was in my 20s rather than my teens. I bounced off it again. And then finally, I did give the modern Hitman trilogy a go on the PS4 in my 30s. And once more, just didn't have the patience or precision to learn the world's rule set and properly work to exploit it. You know, all the things you've just described having to do as like a new player, I tried and failed miserably. (laughs) You know, I really did. I know these are good games. I know that the modern world of assassination series is considered essentially like best in class when we're talking stealth or what it really means to offer a proper sandbox in a focused, smaller environment. Mm. It's just too much of an undertaking for me, though. Like, I remember trying to play through a stage set around a fashion show in Paris. It might be the first one in the game. It might be early on. It's the first level. Literally the first level. There we go. And I just found the amount of things to keep track of too overwhelming. Because in the first minute alone, you need to have made countless micro decisions. And like you say, it's not that there is a right or wrong way of doing things. But for me, I was like, do I need to be tracking this guy? Should I be finding another weapon? Do I need to change my outfit? Should I enter from the front or back or side or roof or fucking window? Should I mingle with people? Should I stay hidden? And with all of it, it was just too much for me. And the final nail for me trying to get into this series at all was back when it was contemporary, the live time-limited events and contract targets that I saw being shared on social media. It boasted about, go and take down this person in the next week for this magic reward. And because of how I play games, that then made me worry that if I ever did pick the thing up, like if I picked up the modern version you're playing, have I already missed out all this stuff? Has it been put back in? Have I been diddled out of unlockables or content just because I wasn't quick enough to buy and play and obsess over a game? I don't know. They're all me problems. You know, I, I get that. Watching a little footage of the game this morning, you can tell within a second, this is a game of quite astonishing craft. Yeah. You know, and I realise that those who enjoy it really enjoy it because it is 
completely non-linear essentially how you approach these stages it's got this kind of unfolding puzzle box design so you need to think on your feet it's got these incredibly advanced ai routines going on in every single character's head across the map but for me it's it's too much <laughs> and it's been too much from its inception yeah. you know the little pull quote that i would have read in computer and video games when i was a teen for hitman codename 47 all the way back in 2000 that was trying to draw me in by promising a level of choice and freedom that seemed alien because of how how broad it seemed you know really enticing but that is the exact part of the franchise that has always now kept me at arm's length when i've tried to play Mm -hmm. because in actually trying to do that and being told do what you like just do what you like i'm like but also tell me what to do (laughs) it's it's like i will do what i like but also just point me in the right direction at the start just get me going like a rolling start and then we'll pick it up from there and yeah it's it's too much for me it's too much do you want to hear about a game that is absolutely for me tacked on chris dell is going to love this game as soon as i heard about it yes please <laughs> cocoon cocoon because if hitman was a series not for me cocoon from my very first exposure was gonna be my bag i wasn't even aware this was in development and you sent me a panic text one evening that read something along the lines of new game from the play dead guy <laughs> and, and that was enough to me to go and find a review i read one paragraph on cocoon the game in question then I immediately closed the tab and knew pretty confidently that at some point soon I was just going to buy and enjoy that game. You know, from the first few lines, I was like, yep, that's that's for me, that is. Cocoon is an indie game. It is the first game from Geometric Interactive, which is a brand new indie studio based in, you guessed it, listeners, if you've been following along, Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> They're a relatively new company. They're headed up by Jeppe Carlsen, who we've already kind of touched on today because... They worked at Playdead as the design lead for Limbo and Inside. After leaving Playdead, Carlson would create the abstract games Thoth and 140, both quite slight but interesting titles that explored first a twin-stick shooter and then kind of a rhythm platform sort of hybrid. And now, with a new team in tow, Yepa is back with Cocoon, a brand new puzzle adventure, not necessarily in the mould of Limbo or Inside, which both used... 2.5D perspective to power their storytelling and gameplay, but absolutely linked in some of its puzzle and world design. I think it's really clear that this has come from a mind that made those two games, basically. The whole thing is viewed from an overhead perspective. You're a weird bug man, and you begin the game able to wander about and interact with objects and switches. It's really stripped back one button control in that you can move the analog stick and press on my pad of choice, the A button to interact. And that is literally it. That felt quite limiting in the first few seconds where I was thinking, oh, it'd be nice to run about or jump or do something. But as soon as you understand what the crux of the game actually is, it all makes sense why it has been set up in this way. Because Cocoon is all about solving spatial puzzles where the components needed to solve these puzzles eventually end up being spread between multiple worlds or planes. And as you progress through the game, you access more worlds by collecting little orbs And these orbs can be carried one at a time over your head and are used both to power pieces of technology scattered throughout each stage. But more importantly, when they are placed inside warp points, they act as portals. And then you can literally dive inside the orb to access a completely different world, completely different space. Yeah, they are the worlds. They are the worlds. They are little globes. The orange orb you receive early in the game houses the rocky desert world that you start in whose windy, foley-led soundtrack put me in mind of Lonely Mountains Downhill. Oh, yeah. The green orb you receive after besting the first boss lets you visit a wet, rainy, swampy world, which reminded me, to make a pretty niche reference, to the Channelwood Age in the adventure game Mist, 
with its kind of like raised houses yeah. over water. Shit. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but it's at this point with two orbs at your disposal that the game becomes fully actualized. That's when it's suddenly like, ah, oh, this is the game. This is Cocoon. Because puzzles start to trade on your ability to move between multiple spaces with ease. And the first time that I did a puzzle that made me shout and point at the TV like that Leonardo DiCaprio meme from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was presented a long horizontal walkway with a warp point at both ends. I needed to transport an orb from my starting point to a device at the end of the walkway that it would power some other thing. But environmental hazards meant that I couldn't carry the orb safely through this passage. After a bit of head scratching, I realised that I could enter the first warp point, still carrying my orb, drop it off on a handy little pedestal in that world or layer, whatever you want to call it, walk back to the puzzle without it, walk safely under the hazard, use a second warp to return to my standee, and then bring it back to where it was needed, like circumventing the blockade by way of this sort of Inception-style layered staging cupboard. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas Limbo, especially inside, felt like atmospheric adventures first with puzzles just an additional part of their worlds. I feel like Cocoon is built entirely around these little puzzle box challenges. And that's not to say it's not evocative in its visual and audio design, because it looks and sounds fantastic. It's a really beautiful game. But the crux of what makes Cocoon tick is different. There is world lore here to unpick at your own pace. You've got environmental design that has you kind of question the history of these places and their hybrid mechanical and organic mashup designs. You've got strange floating black rhombuses that I haven't yet figured out the purpose for. You've got bosses that protect the aforementioned world orbs. So they must have come from somewhere. They must be there for a reason. And you've also got these kind of collectibles to find off the beaten track. And these are particularly interesting because they're not just audio logs or something like that. They are literal creatures that you unearth that are tied to the game's achievements that are referred to as moon ancestors. Mm. Strange bug beings a bit like yourself that rise from the ground when triggered that appear to harken back to like an ancient civilization that may offer a bit more color and history to the whole world i think it's a very very good game made in denmark no less and i'm about halfway through estimates but the whole length are very manageable six or seven hours but i haven't wanted to blast through this like it's felt like something to savor and when i played inside it was the peril of the main character the boy that you're controlling that made me hammer it out in about a day or so because i wanted to find out what was going to happen to him Mm. but with that sense of threat or dread kind of removed in cocoon it's felt a lot closer to like a softer version of the puzzles and atmosphere in the witness just something to kind of pick over in the back of my head whilst i'm away from the console or the computer whatever you're playing it on you've played this one as well haven't you yes i have have you beaten it yes it's absolutely incredible yeah the guy knows his onions that organic teaching of puzzles like in the witness or outer wilds yeah there's no words there's, no, there's just nothing other than just extraordinary design. I mean, I had moments where I was like, hang on a minute. I think, I think this might work. I'm going to try it. If this works, this game is a 10 out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Of course it fucking worked. Of yeah, course, yeah. Course it, of course it worked. It's absolutely staggering. Like There were moments when I thought, no, at some point, this is going to be too much for my brain to handle. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep track of the worlds within worlds within worlds, etc., etc. But there's something about the way the game guides you obviously totally subtly is amazing at focusing your attention to solving smaller puzzles that are part of bigger puzzles that are part of the whole thing and that feeling never goes away and when you think they can't change another gear they change another gear and your mind just absolutely is blown it's phenomenal yeah it is a very you game yeah yeah (laughs) 
Would you like to know where we're going to fly to next month? Yes, Chris. I don't know where we're going next. I've left Chris in charge of booking the plane tickets. <laughs> Chris. So we're taking a flight direct from Denmark. For next month's Around the World episode, we'll be travelling a cool 8,229 miles to South Korea. South Korea. Who'd have thought it? What are we going to find to play in the land of K-pop? Oh. You can find out if you come back on December the 1st. That's how this works now. Oh. There we go. That was our first Around the World in 80 Games trip. And we went to Denmark and we talked about Hitman and Cocoon. Oh, what a great time. What a great time. Honestly, it's not its not as good as going to the country itself, but it is is—it is very good talking about it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I'm so psyched to go to South Korea next month. What? An, whoa, that's going to be great. I'm so excited. If you're playing any games, tell us. Reach out to us on social media. We are at O3C Games on everything. Tell us what you're playing. Give us suggestions of games to play that are from South Korea. Please do. Why not? Please do. And also, feel free to suggest destinations for the rest of this series because, hey, it's up in the air. It's up in the air. We're making it up month by month. Join us in the Discord. Go to o3c.games. Hit the join link. Come and chat to us in there. You can tell us what you're playing. You can tell us where you want us to go. You can, you can give us questions to answer in a future episode. Or you can just revel in the unadulterated joy of video games with us. Oh, we love it. What a great time. Same time next month? I reckon. Yeah.